Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. All right, good morning, everyone. Everybody's lively this morning, I can tell. I think everybody's on that new year, new gear. Fifth gear, sixth gear, seventh gear, eighth gear. Good morning, everyone. My name is Rodney Gonzalez, and um, I'll be speaking this morning. Pastor Jay is not with us, but uh, he already texted me, and uh, he said that you guys need to better mind your manners. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But anyways, um, new year, new gear, right? I don't know if we have that up there, and that's okay if we don't, but new year, new gear, that's basically our model that we're shooting off of. And so I want to just go over a little bit and reiterate... um, what Jay was talking about last week. Uh, But before that, if you could just uh, join me in prayer. So here we are, God, we want to hear from you. One more time, we're we're here to to experience you, to connect with you. Um, I pray today that we would leave here with you, God, uh, with your presence, convinced that, that you are everything and there is nothing and no one else that we need. Um, I pray for that for myself this morning, and I pray for that for everyone that's here and that has ears to hear. Uh, Thank you for what you've already done through the worship and what you're about to do in Jesus' name. So Pastor Jay talked about um, last week about New Year, New Gear, and I took some notes, just so you know, and uh, they're over here in my little notepad, and it says church notes, and that's from last year. It says, I mean, uh, last week, and it says, it's nothing unless we're enjoying the presence of the Lord. Life is nothing unless we're enjoying the presence of the Lord. Another thing he said is, life is only life in the presence of God. Life is only life in the presence of God. I would like to say that this year, everything that we do as pastors or elders uh, will ultimately be a way for you to experience the presence of God in your life to live in the presence of God, to connect to the presence of God, to operate out of the presence of God. I believe that's what would be our focus for this whole next year. No matter what it is we encourage you to do, no matter what commitment we ask from you, no matter how we, we guide you, we want to guide you toward that. And, and what's the reason why? It's just what I took notes on, that God's presence is everything. God's presence is everything. So new year, new gear means that we're not going to be passive about this. We're not going to just sit back and, 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 and somehow expect for it just to fall out of the sky, but that we're going to be, um, and we're not going to be apologetic about it either, but rather we're going to be intentional and bold in directing you to the presence of the living God in, in everything that we do. Everything that we'll be focused will be towards God's presence because being with Jesus is everything. That's the answer to all, all our needs, all that we want, all that we long for. Pastor Jay talked about uh, Psalms chapter 84, verses 1 through 12. In Psalms 84, 1 through 12, um, he's talking about maybe David wrote it, he mentioned, or maybe Solomon wrote it. David, we know, is, is God described as a man after God's own heart, right? He was risen up to be a king. At a very young age, he slays the giant. Solomon, we know, as, as his son, you know, one that built God's 
temple, one that had more riches than any other human ever in existence, one that could experience anything he ever wanted, one that could build or create whatever he wanted. There was nothing that was kept from him from enjoying or experiencing, but yet he said, life is like a vapor, right? It's all for nothing. So when we find David talking about this presence in Psalms 84, 1 through 12, by the way, I'm just giving a preface to our, our topic today. And if you could put up, it's going to be in Luke chapter um, 16, I believe, or 15. Luke chapter 15. So if you can go to Luke chapter 15 and get ready, but I'm just doing this as a preface. So Luke chapter 15 is where we'll be. And it's the story of the prodigal son, the story of the lost son that comes back home. So we find David uh, talking in Psalms 84, 1 through 12, and Jay was talking about this presence. And in verse 10 in Psalms 84, it says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. How is it that David could say that? What's the meaning of this one day in the courts of God versus a thousand elsewhere? Or a doorkeeper rather than dwelling in the tents of the wicked? I'm not sure if we understand what David is talking about when it comes to one day in his courts or the contrast of dwelling in the tents of the wicked. And this leads me today's, to today's text, Luke 15. Now, when we look at Luke 15 today about the prodigal son, I want to look at it in its context. And in order for us to do that, we need to back up just a little bit. So if you're in Luke 15, I want you to go up to verse 7 where Jesus just finishes talking about a story of the lost sheep. The lost sheep was about 99 that were here and one went away. Or 100 were here and one went away. 90 were saved or 90 were safe and one was lost. And in verse 7, it says, In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. That's what it talks about in the lost sheep. The story just after that Jesus starts to speak about is, or speaks about, is the lost coin. And in verse 9 of chapter 15, it says, And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In verse 10, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God and angels when even one sinner repents. So we find the connection of something being lost, of, of a sinner repenting, and then it leads us right into the next story of the prodigal and the lost son. In our text today, the lost son, the prodigal son, verse 32, so if you go down from 15 all the way to the end of our story today that we'll go through, but I want to go right to the end because it puts it in context for us. Verse 32 says, and this is the father after the son comes home. He's talking to the younger, the older son that was with him the whole time. He says, and we had to, um, he says, we had to celebrate this happy day. 
Because the other son that was with him was upset. Why did you go party? And he went and wasted everything, and now he's back, and now we're partying. And, and the father goes to his son and says, we had, to, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead. Now his brother wasn't dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So now we start to find the context of the whole story of this prodigal and lost son. Now I've preached and taught this, and, I, and, and there's so many angles to this story, and it can be uh, taught in so many different ways that are beautiful and amazing. But I'm hoping this morning that we will really gather what the Psalms is saying in 84, better one day in the courts than, than being with the wicked, right? Be a door, a doorman than and one day in the tent of the wicked. What does it mean for someone to be lost? Because each song, each, each story talks about being lost. What does it mean to be dead? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 says, and if you want to turn there and you're quick on your phone or your book, your, your Bible, it says, verse 1, as for you, who is that? Me and you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. So a sin is anything that God says not to do and you don't do it. Or it's anything that God says to do and you refuse to do it. That's what sin is. And that's anything that's in his word. He says you're dead in your sins. You were dead in your sins and your transgressions. God's word says that if we sin, we die. He said that to Adam and Eve. If you sin, you die. So that's where death came to us. Death came because we sinned. We, were, we are all born sinners. We're all born dead to God with no relationship. Ephesians is saying, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So Ephesians is talking to those that are in Ephesus, those that are saved and are now alive and that have been found that they were lost at one time. He's talking to believers. And he's saying, there was one time where you were dead and you disobeyed and you followed the prince and power of the air, which is Satan, right? And you did everything that your body wanted. That's the flesh. We have three enemies, our flesh, the, uh, Satan, and the world. And we see this dead state. And this is the dead state that the story is talking about, the lost son, the prodigal son, that he was dead. So what's the big deal about being spiritually dead? What's the big deal? And following the ways of the world and the rule of the air, what's, what's the big deal about that? I think we can't really understand that or see that until we come to some of these next scriptures that I'm going to read. And I think in our time in the Christian church today, in the history of the church, this is a part that's really missing and really misunderstood. Matter of fact, I think this is a part that most of us here would probably just skip or deny, not admit, to put off, to forget about, to keep as far, far from us as we can, and straight up even not believe. We find it in the book of Revelation. If someone could turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. In order for us to answer this question of what's the big deal about being spiritually dead? What's the big deal about 
following the way of this world and the ruler of the air, following the world, our flesh, right? The enemy. To put it in perspective, we need to look at the scripture. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. When you got it, say amen. So we find in Revelation 20, verse 11, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it, and the earth and the sky fled from his presence. When the earth and the sky flee from something, um, from someone like God, God's pretty big, y'all. You're talking the earth, like, you can't even see me on this earth if you go up to space. Imagine how big God is. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. That's very important, remember that. And the dead were judged according to what they had done. In other words, all of us that have died, we stand before a judgment throne and we're judged according to what we've, been, what we've done. And it says, as a record in the books, so there are these other books that keeps records of everything. The sea gave up its dead, and the dead and death and the grave gave up their dead. In other words, anyone that was in the ground or in the sea, and all were judged according to their deeds. And then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the lake of fire, is the, le- is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found in the book of life, recorded in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Why was death and why was, the gra- why was death thrown into the lake of fire? So death would no longer reign anymore. So we would never die again. That's the second death. That's the eternal destruction of death in itself. So we find a judgment, and we find a lake of fire, and we find those that do not have their names in the Lamb's Book of Life were judged according to what they did and then thrown into the lake of fire. God says to Adam and Eve, you must live, what? Obedient, right? Do not sin. If you sin, you'll be, the wage of sin is death. God's standard for this life is absolute perfection. 100% never failing in word, in thought, in deed, in intention, not even a hint. Nothing evil, nothing wrong, nothing sinful will ever enter heaven, ever. God's standard is perfect. So how is it that we will be judged according to our works when each one of us have already born with a sinful nature and sin from the day that we're born until now? It goes to what Christ did for us on the cross, right? When we place our faith in Christ and in the cross and God's wrath against sin is poured out on his son. God is what we call God as a righteous God. Righteous meaning that he cannot be wrong. He's not like anyone that has ever done something wrong or failed. He's not jicky. He's not crooked. He's not halfway. He's not lukewarm. He doesn't bend the rules. He doesn't overlook sin. See, anytime something is wrong, there's a judgment. There's, some, there's a consequence for that. If not, God would be a God that would be a evil God, an evil judge. He has to judge sin. He has to fulfill the consequence of that sin. And the consequence of that sin is judgment. Judgment for our sin which equals condemnation, which equals separation from God, which equals the lake of fire. But he chooses to put 
that judgment on his son, Jesus, to take it for us in our place. And when we accept Jesus, we now have the great exchange where we exchange Jesus and his righteous life that he lived for our unrighteous life. And all of a sudden, our record is now perfect and our name's in the Lamb's book of life. But we find this judgment. We find this dead state that we're going to talk about and look at in this story of the prodigal son. Revelations 21 verse 8 begin, uh, continues to reiterate why is it so important? What's the big, about, big deal about being dead and being in our sins and separated from God? It says, but cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, Revelations 21 verse 8. Matthew 13, 50 reiterates this, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jude 7 says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, for if God did not spare angels, when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be howled for judgment. Second Thessalonians, the last verse to reiterate this, which I think is the worst of all, all verses, I, well not all verses, but the worst that could happen. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. To be shut out from the presence of God to me is the worst how more than even the lake of fire. To never be with God. So we come to this story of the two, the prodigal son. The one, two sons, one was with the father and one left. And we now start to see the perspective of what the lost coin and the lost sheep and saying that all heavens rejoice when one uh, sinner repents. All heavens is looking at this eternal judgment. All heaven is looking at what God said he would do and see if he would fulfill it and follow through with it. All heaven is watching these human beings made in the image and the likeness of God and whether they will repent and be saved and be found and be safe with the Father. Parable of the Lost Son, chapter 15 of Luke, starting with verse, 20, uh, verse 11. It says, to illustrate the point further, so Jesus goes in, look, Here's the, here, I'm going to illustrate this one more time with you. Remember, there was Pharisees and Sadducees around him, and there was also sinners around him. And the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, especially when it comes to the lost um, sheep, this is very interesting, they thought they were safe. Uh, when he says the 99 were saved and he went for the one that was lost, the 99 that were saved, they think they're the ones that were saved. But did you know that the 99 are actually not saved? Because they need no, no, there's no need for a savior when it comes to the lost sheep. There's no need for a savior. There's no need, there's no recognition of their need for God. There's no recognition that they are guilty for their sins and to only put their faith in Christ is the only way for them to make it into heaven. 
They think that they're the 99 that are safe, but the 99 that are safe, he's saying, you guys think you're safe. And I'm not coming after you. I'm coming after the one that is lost. So we find here the same scenario. It says, Jesus told them a story. A man had two sons, and the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. His father divided everything that the father had between two sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. The son took half of his dad's wealth. Now, when do you get the wealth of the father? Normally when they pass away. In other words, I wish you were dead because I want to get what I want. He says, go ahead and take it. He takes that and he blows it. And about this time, his money ran out and a great famine swept over the land. And he began to starve and he pursued a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him but no one gave him anything. So we find this younger son that decides to leave. And here we can see that any time there is sin, it always wants us to separate us from God, from our loved ones, from our church, from our family, from what is right. It always promises something that's better, something that's gonna fulfill us. It always tells us we're missing something. Even though we have everything, we're missing this one thing, and we need to go get it. The sad thing is that the picture that it paints is never the reality. It's just a facade. It makes us delusional. The other thing that happens is that it costs us more than we ever want to spend. It makes us sacrifice the beautiful things in life sacrifice our relationship with God for whatever it is that that uh, picture is painted. Now we find him coming to this place where he ran out of everything and he goes to this local farmer and in those times Jews did not touch pigs, they didn't eat pig and definitely wouldn't be found slopping pigs, right? Feeding the pigs. The crazy thing that we find here is that the very food that the pigs were eating, which isn't that good at all, by the way, he's now desiring. And that's exactly what the world, what Satan, and what our flesh wants to accomplish. Is it wants us, it wants to paint a picture that somehow and get us to a point that we are deceived, we are blind, and that we are not able to see the filth. And all of a sudden, even those things that are no good for us now seem to be good for us. Sin causes us to be delusional. Verse 17 says, And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both 
heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So we find that he comes to his senses. And, and there's a place in our life because God is so loving that he would cause you to come to your senses. And sometimes it is circumstantial that that happens to, to us. Through circumstances getting worse, right? God comes to knock on the door of our life. God comes to, to uh, invite us. God calls us to come home to be with him. And then sometimes we ignore him and we ignore him and we ignore him. But because he's loving, because he's kind, sometimes he will cause a storm to come in our life in order for us to come to our senses. And he comes to his senses and he starts to realize, man, I've messed up. And he begins to rehearse what he's going to tell his father so hopefully his father would accept him. Verse 22 says, I mean, uh, yes, verse 22 says, but his father said to his servants, so here he comes home, right? And we find, I'm sorry, let me go back. And when finally he came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even my hired ser the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger, and I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both you and heaven, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired hand. See, he knew even in his father's house as a servant, they ate better. He started to realize, I'm missing. I'm missing this place that I need to be. Give me just a second. And it says here in verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and treat me as one of your servants. So he's, he's rehearsing this. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here's where we find and see the father's love, that he's out on the porch because he's looking, he says, from afar off. He's looking. He's looking, he's waiting, he's watching. Just like all heaven is watching and waiting for one person to come to him. And then it says that he runs. In those times, to run is very humbling for a man, especially an older man, to run. And he runs to his son. And then his son begins to tell him the story. He says, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servant, bring quickly. That word but means he interrupted and said, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Bring me. Right? Bring me quickly the best. God starts to bring his best. The robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The ring was a signet ring. And in those days, that's what they used to press in wax. And that would be basically your credit card. So could you imagine, he just spent half his wealth, and now he's like, go ahead and bring me the Amer Black American Express, right, card, the unlimited one. He brings him the best. And he says, 
and bring the fatted calf. That's the one that they're grain feeding, organic grain, so it could be just the best of the best, and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this is my son. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, his older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. And the servant says, your brother is back. He was told, and your father has killed a fatted calf, and we're celebrating because he is now safe. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I have slaved for you, and never once to do a single thing you told me to, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, so now he's referring to as an object, right? This is his brother. This son of yours, in other words, he's not even my brother, comes back after squandering your money and prostitutes and celebrating by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, look, son. You have always stayed with me, stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Now he is found. We see that the son is now in the presence of the father. The son was destined or headed towards eternal separation. But now he's saved. I want to read you a story, and this is from the book, uh, from J.D. Greer's book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Now, don't take that literally, because there's nothing wrong with that. But the reason why he wrote that book was because of this story, or one of the reasons. One afternoon, I was at a local basketball court and started a pickup game with a guy I had seen there a few times. He was quite a character. He cursed like a sailor, wasn't sure what actual color of his skin was by all the tattoos that he had. Not that tattoos are wrong or anything. He boasted continually about all the ladies in his life, both past and present. He wasn't that kind of guy you'd suspect to see at your Wednesday night worship service at your youth group. As we played our game, I began to share my story of how I came to Christ. About three sentences into it, he stopped, grabbed the ball, and said, Bro, are you trying to witness to me? Surprised, surprised he even knew the term witness. I said, uh, wow, yes. He says, that's awesome. No one has tried to witness to me in a long time. But don't worry about me. I went to youth camp when I was 13. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And I, was, and, it, and I was legit. I became a superstar Christian. I went to youth group every week. I did the true love weights commitment thing. I memorized verses. I went on mission trips. 
I don't think I've done any of those things, just so you guys know, but anyway. <laughs> I even led our uh, other friends to Jesus. About two years after that, I realized I didn't like God giving me a life of rules telling me what I could and could not do. So I decided to put God on hold for a while, and after a while, just quit believing in him altogether. I'm a happy atheist now. He then added, but here's what's awesome. The church I grew up, grew up in was Southern Baptist, and they taught eternal security. That means once saved, always saved. By the way, aren't you a Baptist? Awkward silence for me. He went on. That means that my salvation at age 13 still holds, even if I don't believe in God anymore now. Once saved, always saved, right? That means that even if you're, if you're right and God exists and Jesus is the only way, I'm safe. So either way, works out great for me. If I'm right, then I haven't wasted my life curbing my lifestyle because of a fairy tale. Okay, score 7-7, seven, seven. check it up, your ball. See, salvation is a posture and a faith that begins in a moment but is maintained the rest of your life. The mark, however, of someone who is saved is that they maintain their confession of faith until the end of their lives. Salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from salvation in a posture of repentance and, um, I mean, then move on from. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. The 2011 Barna study says, shows that nearly half of the adults in America have prayed such a prayer and subsequently believe they are going to heaven. Though many of them rarely, if ever, attend a church, read the Bible personally, or have a lifestyle that differ in any significant way from those outside the church. The groups described in Matthew 7 and Luke are not, uh, if they're not referring to them, I don't know whom they could be referring. And I'll read this last part, and then I'll go on. The enemy, one of whose, one of whose name in Scripture is deceiver, loves to keep truly saved believers unsure. Let me say that again. The deceiver loves to keep truly saved believers unsure of their salvation because he knows that if he does, they'll never experience the freedom, the joy, and the confidence that God wants them to have. But he also loves to keep those on their way to a howl deluded into thinking they are no longer, I mean, they are on their way to heaven, their conscience amused from Jesus' pleas to repent. Psalms 84 talks about one day in the presence of God rather than a thousand elsewhere. A doorkeeper at the house of God than one day in the tent of the wicked. Why does he say that? Because I want you to know something. I want you to hear this. This is very important. God does not want to just improve your life. He doesn't just want, he wants to do that, but he just doesn't want to do that solely, entirely. 
He doesn't want to just alleviate some stress. He doesn't want to just um, get you out of depression and worry and anxiety. He doesn't want to just improve your marriage. He doesn't want to just, like, you know, go to church and make your lifestyle look a little better, a little bit, hey, I go to church, I'm a good person. He wants to save you and save me. He wants to totally transform everything about you from the inside out. He says, in order for you to find your life, you must lose it. Lose this life that's self-seeking, self-improving. There's nothing wrong with improving, but I'm saying that's focused on just self-improvement. This life that's just about us. And he wants us to find a life that's all about him because we are made for him. God wants a transformation. See, Jeremiah 29, 13, 4 says, 13 and 14 says, when you come looking for me, you will find me. Many of us, I don't know what you feel like today or where you're at in your state, but you might be saying like, I can't feel God, God's far away, you know, where is God? God doesn't move. God gives a description of himself as the father that's on the porch looking and waiting day after day after day after day. Is my daughter, is my son coming home? He's working He's doing stuff, but he's always looking. He's always looking. Could you imagine the fright, the fear, the pain, the suffering the father was going through as he sees his son lost and dead? Could you imagine that? The only thing that matters to the father is that he would come home. That he come to know him, that he come back to him, that he'd be with him forever and ever. Because that's what he created him for. God made all mankind to be with him forever. But we all choose something else. But because of grace, not what we do, not what we don't do, because of grace, what Christ does, Ephesians says, By grace you've been saved through faith. And this faith is a gift of God. God gives us this faith to believe that he's good, that he has everything, that he is everything. And through that faith, we now get eternal life. We now get acceptance. We now come home to the Father. And that's what matters most to God. And I believe that's what the Psalm, is David's, Psalm of David is talking about. Or if it was so- Song of Solomon was, talk- uh, Solomon was talking about. Is that you can have everything in this world. You can improve your life and make it healthy in the world's standards, in the world's way. You can even enjoy your life. But if you miss being in the presence of God, you've missed everything. And David knew his potential David was a man after God's own heart. David was a young man that took a a few rocks and killed the enemy that taunted 
an army full. David knew God intimately, but David's capacity for sin was tremendous. He was looking over his balcony, found a woman, plotted a way to be with her, sleep with her, get her pregnant, take her husband who was loyal to the court and to the king that was fighting all the time, put him on the front line for him to be murdered so he could cover up his sin. David knew how much he needed the presence of God. I don't know how long you've been living for God. I don't know if this is your first day. I don't know if you don't even know God. I don't know if you ever come to him and really say, I want to surrender and give you my whole life. Or if you've been walking with God for some time and you've just blew him off and you just think that, hey, I just have to have a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of church, just a little bit of God in my life, but I really have never surrendered my life. I've never really said, that's it. I want to live holy for you. I want to give up everything for you, and I need you to take me, and I need you to make me, and I want to follow you the rest of my life. Jesus says, you need to count the cost. You need to measure what is the cost going to be. Uh, John the Baptist says, you must repent. That means you must stop what it is and turn from whatever direction it is that's away from God and turn towards God and keep that orientation towards God. The Bible says you must work out your safe salvation with fear and trembling. This is not a one-time event. This is not just one prayer you say. It's not, man, I'm saved, except me, and he's going to close his eyes to our sin and our wrong and our running away from him and our turning away from him and saying that some way, somehow on the last day I'm going to be saved. That's not it at all. It's a complete orientation to turn towards God with your life. And why does he want that? Why does he want that? We go back to Revelations chapter 21. And it says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. And the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That's you if you are saved. That's me. How is it with all my sin, all my wrong intentions, my sinful nature, all the things that I've done wrong, could I be dressed as a beautiful bride for God? And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eye, and there will be no more death and sorrow or crying or pain, and all these things are gone forever. This is what God has in store for you. This is what life is all about. What we live here is nothing but a vapor. It's going by so quick and so fast. We spent eight weeks in emotionally healthy spirituality discipleship. You know the reason why we spent eight weeks to preach on it every Sunday, to meet every Wednesday, to work through it, to grind through it? You know why we did that? It's because, first of all, we do not want to paint and, and, and have this picture of this surface Christianity that keeps you on the surface, on the outside, not in the home with the Father, where we just sort of like, you know, brush over everything with a smile on our face and everything's fine where we push past those emotions of anger and hurt and fear and worry, 
We went beneath the surface realizing that, hey, there are things that have happened to us in our life. There are actual attacks from the enemy. Do you think that the day you were born, the enemy just went away and said, let's give him the best or her the best life they can have? No, he's targeted you since you were a baby. Some of you almost didn't even make it out of the hospital. I'm one of them. I had, I had pneumonia and I was about to die. And my mom says she remembers me looking at her as an infant, as a newborn baby saying, Mom, don't worry, it's going to be okay. I don't know where she got that from, but I survived, but I was about to die. From that day, he's been trying to kill me, just like he tried to kill Jesus, and that's why all those babies were killed. Why? Because he has an assignment to keep you from God. So those hurts and those pains that have happened to you, whether through every avenue, whether you hurt yourself or others have hurt you, we talked about how we need to grieve those things. We need to talk about those things. We need to deal with those things. And because we have Christ, we can. Because we have his presence, we can. Because in his presence there is light, there is truth, there is honesty, there's transparency. If we've already been forgiven for our worst sins, then what are we worried about? If there's nothing that keeps us and separate us from the love of God, then why wouldn't we deal with them? So we bring those things to others in Christ and share them and talk about them and work through them, right? We realize that we didn't just end up in this place in our life on our own, like 40, 30, 20 years old. No, we had an upbringing and our upbringing affected us. That's our genogram, going back and saying, I didn't just end up this way, just this way. So many things happened to me in my life and they're real and they're hard, right? And we're able to actually work through those and deal with those but through it all, we said there's nothing, nothing that matters more than being with Jesus. And all these things that have happened in our life and everything uh, that the enemy wants to tempt us with and in the world and our flesh is to keep us from the presence of God. It's so powerful and so important to keep us from the presence of God that God himself sent his only son to pour his own wrath on our, of, because of our sin on his son, made his son to become sin that knew no sin, that we may become the righteousness of God. He sent his son to hell so we wouldn't have to go. I don't know where you're at today. But there is a beautiful place in the presence of God. It's an all day, every day, throughout the day, presence of God. And that's wonderful, and that is beautiful, and that's exactly what God wants you to have. And will it help you alleviate stress and anxiety and worry and bitterness and fears? Yes, as you work through it little by little, talking about it, working through it. It's not going to happen overnight, sometimes overnight. And God wants that. Can he heal a sickness? Yes. Can he heal a marriage? Yes. But God wants more than that for, for you. God wants more than that. He wants to be with you forever and ever and ever in heaven. And he's willing to do whatever it takes, which is to give his son for you to be with him. As the musicians come up, Now, I don't know where you're at with the gospel. I don't know where you're at with being in the presence of God. But I can tell you this, that the presence of God, where the presence of God is, when it becomes more beautiful 
and more sweet and more wonderful, that's what competes with sin. Until it becomes more beautiful, sin will always have an edge on it, on us. The presence of God is everything because it means salvation, first of all. God saving me from a hell, forgiving me of my sins. Second, it will be, it will be able to be, we'll be able to be with him forever in heaven. And I'm talking forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Look, y'all, some of us are almost on our way out. It could be today. Some of us didn't even make it to where we're at today at our age. But this is forever. And the people around us are faced with that same situation. It's forever. The third thing, it's the only thing to keep, is, is to keep my faith and my posture towards God forever, the presence of God. Fourth, it allows me to courageously look at every hurt that someone has done or that I've done and to grieve it, to deal with it. Fifth, it allows me to look at every hurt. I already said that. I'm sorry. And also that I've caused and be able to forgive, uh, receive forgiveness and get help for it. Sixth, it allows me to face everything sinful that I've done and will do and share it with others so they can hold me accountable and walk me through the process. The presence of God is the only thing at the end of the day that is sweeter and better and more fulfilling than any sin. The presence of the Lord is the only thing that will give me freedom from certain habitual sin. The presence of God is everything. The presence of God is everything. The presence of God is everything.